Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about Strongholds. Nathan, what is a Stronghold? A stronghold is a place where people hide and protect themselves. Technically accurate, yeah. Although I'm kind of glad you didn't make the joke about the thing that Canterbury or Caden or Gorif attempt to do. Uh, anyway. Yeah, a stronghold is generally referring to something like a castle or a keep, some fortress of some kind that it has just huge amounts of security and safety measures and protection to have a place where characters can live. So stronghold is the word used. Wait, However, wait. yes. Are they called strongholds because like they're strong places to hold? Yes. Uh <laughs> Yes. Although, why they didn't just go with the word fortress? I don't know. Maybe that has more English like connotation that I'm not aware of. But anyway, so it is usually these like massive complexes with a lot of just stuff that we're definitely going to be talking about in a moment. But before we get to all that, that type of stronghold is just that a type of stronghold. The more zoomed in view, which I know is strange coming from me, is it's a place where characters can live and feel safe. And in a D&D world, that is an enormously underrated fact. Now, funny enough, on the small scale of things, Nathan, you actually did this accidentally and then stopped us from ever fucking getting to use it in, I want to say, episode one or two of Arc 2. Yes. Then the players gained access to a small place to call their own that to this day, the party has never actually gotten to go to and see. I shall say. So fuck you for that. But wait, the point wait, wait, that wait. I... You, you, don't, you don't get it. No, no, I'm not going to let this slide. Remy. Uh-huh. You don't just um, give players a stronghold. You imply it long at the beginning of a campaign. Have them fuck off a bit. And after a couple of weeks, where presumably this destroyed city would have had some repairs, you just let, let them go back and see the place, you, you know? Uh-huh. But that, that last yeah. bit hasn't happened yet, and we're on yeah. episode 20 or so now? So yeah, that's it's only uh, 20. more than a couple of weeks, even in game time. <laughs> So you promise us safety and then throw us at the worst monsters your mind has come up with. <laughs> Welcome to Riffway. <laughs> <sighs> Fuck you. Anyway, the point, though, is that you had the right idea of it, is that even if it's not a place that you actually do show often on screen, the implication alone that there is a place in the world where you can go and feel safe is the counter to the overly frequent murder hobo adventurers. Because adventurers, in theory, are supposed to be out there with purpose. There's something that they are going after or trying to accomplish. However, a lot of D&D games lose sight of that 
and just end up just power money, power money. And yes, those can be goals in their own right, but it very often ends up just as the default without being intentional. So what you did was actually a good bit of storytelling that I'm only slightly exaggerating, though, is slightly irksome to me. But it is a valid storytelling method to have this thing, this thing to look forward to, this place to go home. I mean, going back to the you know fucking Greek myths, talking about Odysseus and his just desire to go home, being the impetus of his hero's journey. Having a place to call home is not to be underestimated, and yet is so very rarely done. So absolutely think about having some form of stronghold in your games. Wait, so, so Remy, what, yes. one, one thing I would actually like to point out is that a stronghold may not necessarily be something that the DM plans for. So by stronghold in this case, I mean a place that players would consider home, would um, hold dearly to their hearts as a place that they feel um, brings back memories of uh, where they began from. So think of it as, for example, the dainty flower when we, um, f towards the end of art, one, it was a place that you spent a good portion of the early uh, campaign uh, hanging out in. And when you came back, it was a sort of thing like it, it did feel like getting back to um, a, a sort of home, uh, if I like gather it correctly. So you are making a good point. However, you're wrong because the Dainty Flower, you're right, was somewhat of a home. It is a place where the players could be comfortable, or the characters, excuse me, could be comfortable. However, as you repeatedly proved to us, it is not safe there at all, <laughs> ever. <laughs> and that is a very important distinction when talking about a stronghold. And with that being said, let's talk more about exactly how to use a stronghold in your game. So... Instead of just talking about the walls and such, I will start by the most basic thing, which, as you mentioned, is just a home, a place without protection. Because, yeah, like everyone in the world, well, um, actually, that's unfortunately not true, but uh, most you know, people have a home, a place where they are comfortable. However, it is pretty much just the rules of society that do prevent anarchy and chaos, because anybody could just pick up a big rock and smash a window or try to break open a door but thankfully more often than not we don't do that because we respect the rules and laws of society however in dungeons and dragons that law of society is actually less strong than our own world which is actually kind of an interesting thing in its own right but that's honestly more of a discussion of philosophy than I really have time to get into in this episode. Maybe that could be like a future Patreon thing. Let us know if that's something you'd be interested in. Anyway, so first things first is the idea of home. You can have a place to live, but it is unprotected. So where we start venturing into the idea of a stronghold is a place where you can be safe. And how you get such a place is a very important part of its just use and usefulness in a Dungeons and Dragons game. Because as you demonstrated, Nathan, the most frequent way for someone to get a stronghold, at least in my own experience, see, is 
as a reward for deeds done. So the players do something, and then usually they'll clear some land or clear, you know, creatures or monsters out of a castle of some sort. And then as a reward, the players are given the deed to that place. Now, that is a very common way it is done. But there are also other ways that it can be done. So honestly, this is something that I kind of would like to see us do in Riftwake if we ever do go back to the characters from Arc 1, because we have explicitly seen that places are not safe. And so it would make sense that with the wealth that they have accumulated to desire a place of their own that is safe. And this is where a very important line comes up, because it is very easy, actually, to have the game tangent into like a simulator building kind of game where you spend a lot of in-game hours talking about and session time talking about this is the thing that I want. I want to like build my own castle in this spot. And then I want to hire, you know, people from here with this type of stone and like the detail level work of it, which obviously is something that I like, but I am well aware is not most people's forte because most people just don't care about the stupid levels of detail that I do. And I know this and that's okay. That's just where we go into player types, which is another thing that we will be talking about in a future episode, actually pretty soon. Uh, Anyway, the amount of time you spend on the stronghold is something that you need to think about. Do you want to play the simulator game? And is that something that everyone in the group is okay with devoting that time to be? Because honestly, if you wanted to, you could have an entire campaign around that. It could entirely be you have a place that is yours and all of your quests, all of your spending, all of your efforts are going to building that up and exactly how you decide to shape that. And that actually will lead to yet another tangent that is a fun part of Stronghold. It does not have to be just a place for the player characters, because something that a lot of people don't automatically think about is the amount of fucking upkeep that it takes to keep up a keep. It takes a lot of people to keep such a thing clean, to keep the people fed, to raise the animals to feed the people, to keep the the keep itself safe, to keep the surrounding area safe. There is a reason that historically speaking, like a keep was like the center of a town and even cities sometimes grew around a central keep that just is a thing that happens as a thing just grows and wealth accumulates in a spot over time and that is something that you can lean into but the other thing is that the whole goal of the stronghold is to have a safe home so remy we've been talking a lot about how uh keeps are safe and everything so one thing i would like to bring up is how keeps uh, could be attacked because uh, that's the fun bit, right? So what I would say is that keeps are a very fun thing to use as a, um, a dungeon master as a plot, plot point. So the fun thing is that since it is a keep or a um, stronghold to be more specific, it is a place that the more minor enemy won't actually be able to get in. It could be a thing where it's like, 
oh, one of the guards is like, oh, this bunch of bandits tried to attack us and we wrecked the shit out of them. But the more interesting bit is, for example, you come across a big bad and one of his main things would be, I have a ton of resources or I am well known by the royalty. And the cool thing is that you can have all sorts of things where maybe the big bad might be able to do certain things, mess around with the politics, um, send if, if you did something bad or they have the people for it, send armies against you. And I feel like that could be really interesting depending on what uh, kind of campaign you're going for. Absolutely. That is one of the fun things about the long-term version of playing around the stronghold, which is the fact that there are so many ways that it can be attacked. And you actually brought up the bandit example first, and that's where I actually disagree with you. Because... We're talking about 5th edition D&D here. And as I do so often say, Nathan, what is one of the most important aspects of a fight in 5th edition? Guns. Nathan. Action economy. (laughs) Action economy! (laughs) Exactly. And the thing is, D&D is a world where adventurers can make a fuck ton of money, but there is still a massive disadvantage with sufficient numbers. So if you do have this new keep in some area that has, you know, less support from, you know, any kingdom that might be farther away, which we can also talk about in a moment, but then all of a sudden you can be cut off from getting return of resources. And this is where we get to the idea of a siege. So a siege is where a castle or a keep or just some location is cut off from being able to leave. So you surround the place and all of a sudden, ah, crap, what do we do if we can't get fresh food? If they like were to, you know, fire fire arrows and burn down our fields, like how the fuck do we survive? Like if they are numerically against us, because again, the numbers matter. If you are in a newer stronghold, like even then you might have 50 people, but maybe only like 10 of them can actually fire a bow. Most of them are probably going to be, you know, farmers, maids, just people maintaining the place. So you suddenly have all of these people that you need to keep safe with less people that are able to defend, again, unless you devote a lot of money to hiring, you know, more people to defend yourself. And then it's, Again, how you can see how it can be very simulator-like in terms of resource management. But again, I think that's fun. Your mileage may vary. Anyway, if you have even just 100 bandits, which is a lot, but not an unreasonable lot, because, yeah, there could be 100 people that are disenfranchised, you know, just angry or just see an opportunity because, like, oh, shit, there's a keep. If we move into that place, we're safe. And I don't care about those 50 people. I care about my 100 people. And you can have situations where, yeah, it's a shitty thing that they're trying to do, but I can understand what they're trying to do because, again, everyone wants a safe place to call their own. But anyway, so like you were also talking about, though, besides just bandits, there are other things that could happen. You can have the single powerful big bad because... If you have a person who can teleport and you can't, that's troublesome. Because how the fuck do you defend against some of that? So that will lead us into talking about actual defenses around the stronghold. 
because this is an area that is hotly, hotly debated in terms of do you only go by rules as written or do you allow homebrew? Do you use like supplemental material of like, okay, you can use this one third party book to come up with the rules or do you go back to older editions? Because this has been a debate through the history of Dungeons and Dragons to the point where even back in, oh crap, I don't actually remember if it's uh, 3 or 3.5, but there actually is a book, the Stronghold Builder's Guidebook, that is hundreds of pages entirely devoted to the subject of strongholds. And I mean, the, you can still buy that PDF for that book now. So if this is a subject of interest to you, I highly recommend that because holy moly, do they have a lot. Like that has a level of rules in it that even... I have to stop for a moment and just say, damn, because it has charts for every single, well, not every, but most wall materials that you can practically expect to use for the building of a stronghold and prices for it to figure out, okay, if I have, you know, X feet of walls around of this material, it will cost Y. And it's all of the math that you might ever possibly need. And it even has like wood walls, stone walls, crystal walls. I think it even has fucking bone walls. Uh, it has walls that are just magical force and not actually a physical material. So if you do just want to use that book, even in a fifth edition game, it has all the rules you could possibly need. It has magical rooms. It has magical traps. Oh, I, I really like that book. It's actually one of my favorite D&D books, period. Just, it has so much stuff. Uh, anyway, sorry, that was a bit more of a tangent than I was planning on. Uh, um, stronghold defenses. So even if you do decide to go the rules as written only, then there are actually still quite a number of things available to you. So there actually is a lot of magic in like canonical 5th edition to defend a place. So first things first, that just immediately comes to mind for me. There actually is a spell in Xanathar called Mighty Fortress. It is an eighth level wizard only uh, conjuration spell that is nuts. What this spell basically does, the summed up version, because it actually is one that has a lot of text. You summon and just magically conjure a fortress made out of stone that is a 120 foot squared off walled area that even has a small keep in the middle that is 50 feet on a side. So you summon a stone wall around a 50 foot keep. And what the spell does, though, is that the thing lasts for a week. However, if you keep casting the spell on the same spot every week for a year, it becomes permanent. Permanent wall. Permanent keep surrounded by a wall. Permanent so, wall keep. Yeah. So this is not a particularly large area. However, a three-story, 50-foot keep is nothing to scoff at. I, I can and, imagine that being used quite effectively in, uh, for example, yeah, in a new land and uh, there's a hostile, um, you know, hostile enemies that, um, you know, are uh, going about, and if you were to go and take the that that idea and then switch it up by saying, okay, maybe if there's a bunch of people casting the thing at one spot, it might be faster. You can have that sort of thing where, um, 
you know, have entire campaign, like war campaigns, if you know what I mean, um, where mm-hmm. groups of armies just set up quick camps and then summon forth walls and keeps to protect themselves, you know, and that could be really cool. Yeah. And another thing that's also cool is that it gives you stats. So it mentions that everything is made out of stone that can be damaged and that each 10 foot by 10 foot section has 15 AC and 30 hit points per inch of thickness. So different places have different thickness of stone. So like a wall is one foot thick. So that's a lot of hit points to chew through to try to just bash down one of these walls. And then you get into siege weapons, which we talked about at length in that episode, which you all know that I really am enthusiastic about. So this spell alone could mean that if you have sufficiently rich and powerful magic users, that this could be a thing that is out there. And technically, even by rules as written, it is established that magic items can be made with the ability to cast a spell. Like, that's common D&D. So you could just have a homebrew magic item that maybe it is just, okay, this thing costs like 50,000 gold to make this magic item. But if you just like plant this thing, like you just like stick a cube in the ground somewhere and then it just becomes a keep. And then maybe like the magic item was made with, you know, 52 castings of the spell so that it is just all of the effect instantly. Like, again, with a magic item, you can do a little bit more hand wavium or it could even be the first year of this thing existing is very dangerous because it can get fucked up in that time. So you have to keep this thing safe for a year until it becomes permanent. And then that creates a weakness in a potential stronghold. So if you have that type of magic item as either a quest quest reward or just like something that people can buy, like maybe there just are sufficiently capable artificers who are able to make this item... And then all of a sudden, there can be adventurers all over the place that do just plant these all over the realm to just like have to keep it safe for a year until it is permanent. And that alone could actually be a quest. Like maybe even you have low level adventurers like in your campaign that are hired so they could be the hirelings who are hired to guard this keep and it could be a whole thing where there is this patron who hired them that they work for and that his goal is to establish himself as like the owner of this land through this keep and so it is the adventurer's job to protect him and then you can even go into the intrigue angle of things. Like, are there people who are trying to like convince you know the doors to be open to let in an invading force, or to let someone in to try to assassinate the Lord, promising that the players can take over the place for themselves? And maybe they actually do. Like, maybe they're not lying, and the players could actually could get to keep it. Like, to put such choices in front of players, anything that creates player choice can be a valuable thing. And the existence of just that one magic item by making it so that this can exist, but just be guarded for a year. That is something that I did implement in my own world with that. So it's more expensive to make the magic item, but it requires less high level magic users to have this exist because demographics of D&D is another just interest of mine. But again, that's not something totally relevant for this episode, but 
Again, this is an eighth level spell, which means there can't be that many people able to cast it in most D&D worlds. But if you just had one artificer who, you know, convinces like the one, one or two of the high level wizards to just give them like the spell formula and allow that to be enough to make the magic item, you can finagle it enough to be rules-ish okay. Anyway, I have been rambling a lot about just that particular spell. <laughs> so, uh, Nathan, what would be your opinion on how frequent strongholds could be out in the world? So, what I'm thinking, right, is that it really depends on the setting and what kind of continent you're talking about. But I, I imagine that you know, lands with more monsters are more likely to have keeps and stuff. So, for example, Adarst, which is the mainland of, like, mainland with quotations of Rathwaite, uh, <laughs> is less likely to have keeps at this current time because most of the so-called monsters that you can find while traveling uh, or near settlements would be bandits and such right but so let's say you just move the camera over to veteran with its zombie issue and after the whole you know continent falling out of the sky i think tons of additional zombies just chilling about i imagine keeps would be pretty big things so um that you would actually be protected you wouldn't have so many like villages as much as keeps with villages about um that that uh, surround them you know that kind of thing and yeah, it, it really depends on the kind of um, place it is uh, and how how that influences your world and um, what kind of securities your world has can influence the number of keeps that would be on any one continent or country. Exactly. And thinking about the frequency is honestly just a very important thing because Obviously, I am a fan of strongholds. I think that that bias of mine has become clear through this. However, it is something that may or may not fit into the style of particular areas or even particular worlds. So like you were just talking about, Nathan, you can think about the different like monster demographics in the world to consider, okay, where is it that it would be good to have like a place to have like advanced warning that, oh, there are these forces coming through or there are these, you know, creatures coming through because historically speaking, a lot of, you know, keeps and such do exist in the middle of nowhere because they're at points of access to like the land of a kingdom. So it could be, okay, there are like mountains to the north, you know, ocean on the south. So there's this one valley that is the most likely spot where an invading army would come from. So it would make sense then to have like a keep either in the valley or potentially just like on the mountain with a view of the valley to be able to see, ah, yes, you know, the neighborhood kingdom is sending forces. Send word back to the king. That actually um, bring a lot, uh, like reminds me that uh, Rondel is actually one of such keeps, though it isn't exactly in the most strategic location uh, based on geography. Um, it grew; it's a small encampment that kind of like it's a encampment that kind of grew from um, where the armies were mainly stationed at, and kind of ended up being a sort of militaristic. Uh, town more or less in its current state because it's been so recent since the um, 
you know, um, whole demon war thing ended. But in a couple of years' time, who knows? Uh, might just change for the less militaristic. And yeah, that, that's just an interesting thing to think about when uh, creating towns and such, because um, sometimes these places could have once been uh, certain um, influential spots on the map where uh, an army was trying to hold a location and like, um, you know, such support lines as, uh, you know, tradesmen, craftsmen, um, merchants and stuff might end up appearing there the war ends and then you know you just have people retire and then if that place is safe maybe they'll just settle on there you know absolutely and that also goes back to what we were talking earlier and also going back even farther what we talked about in other world building episodes to think about why the cities that you have are where they are so it is entirely likely that some number of them did just grow that way over time, that it was just some defensible location somewhere between two kingdoms, between, you know, maybe there's some large tribe of creatures, whatever the situation may be, that it can just be, oh, this grew into a city over time because this location was safer than just having some farm in the middle of nowhere. Because that is honestly something that I don't understand in Dungeons and Dragons, like worlds, like from the world building side, very frequently you do still see like, oh yeah, you know, they've, they've just got this farm in the middle of nowhere. How the fuck does a farmer not just die if you just live out in the woods? Like, <laughs> no, that'd be hilarious. Like I, I'm imagining it's like Johnny the farmer. He, he's a dangerous one, says a bandit to another bandit. Why, why like, do you say that? And then it's like, whenever we get close, <laughs> people just start dying. We don't no, even no. know why. Oh, I thought you were just going to say, like, anyone who does actually survive as a farmer, just like to old age, has to yeah, be that's terrifying. a badass or the luckiest oh, no, individual no, I, I, I in the imagine, world. Right. Can, can you imagine? Like, it, I, I bet a bunch of those places is just adventurers who are hit level 20 and just like, you don't want to settle down. <laughs> Maybe. And that very well could be the case. Like, or it could just be a situation of, you know, farmer just, yep, just set up my land, want to just have a place outside the hustle and bustle of city life. And these damn goblins gave me trouble, but I was able to, you know, set some poison traps and take them off. Uh, they actually had some coins on them, though, so I was able to use that to get a better fence. But, uh, when that happened, some orcs came and then they were giving me trouble, but they still ate the poison food. Turns out, well, maybe there is something to education to talk. Don't eat the food you find, but that's another story. But yeah, after the orcs, there was a troll. Once my my pigs started doing well, it came over, tried taking my pigs, uh, managed to just poison that one. Turns out, a lot of things vulnerable to poison. Anyway, just like keep going and going, and just like you know, this just farmer turns into accidental badass. <laughs> just, just like the the size of the thing just keeps on getting bigger, and nothing happens. Like it could just be like maybe they just are shockingly reasonable, and like the farmer just negotiates with the local, you know, whatever troublesome thing is. This. It's just like there's a werewolf. There's a werewolf that's in killing people. But what about, about Farmer Jim? Oh, I, I think he had a chat the other day with the werewolf. They, they don't do shit to him. Yeah. yeah, the werewolf was limping as he walked away. It was the weirdest thing. But yeah, didn't trouble Jim since. 
<laughs> but anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is just like if you have these just random places in the middle of nowhere, think about why they're there. A, f- a single farm in the middle of nowhere in a D&D world shouldn't really do well unless they are extraordinarily clever or lucky or talented. But anyway, but back to the actual topic of strongholds. That was just a kind of fun tangent. But so we actually started at the big side, thinking about magically creating this thing. But a keep is not the only type of stronghold. And I do need to emphasize this point. That is the most commonly understood version. That is not the only one. It is entirely possible to have a wood fortress. The reason that humans have built shit out of wood for most of human history is because it's a good building material. It's reasonably strong, it's reasonably easy to work with, and it's fucking everywhere. So if you have this just place in the middle of a forest that you know they want to have some form of stronghold, whether that is you know adventurers or something more official, then yeah, that totally makes sense. And you can just have... You know, you don't even need to have a full wall. You could just have the pointy sticks in the ground sticking out like you see in like zombie movies a lot of the time. Just have like the spiky wood type of fence. Because, again, the reason those exist is because they fucking work. They work well. So, of course, that's an option. And, of course, that's a thing that would be out there. And that's something that could be built more quickly than most stone construction. And so, yeah, that would totally be out there. And another version of that that also must be mentioned is we've been focusing heavily on the adventurer angle of things, but that very much does not have to be the case because we talked just recently, in fact, about guilds. And we actually kind of accidentally focused a lot on the idea of guilds in cities, but that does not actually have to be the case because you could very easily have an adventurer's guild that is just in the middle of nowhere because it's kind of safer if you have you know 20 50 adventurers that are just kind of grouped together that could actually make a city kind of nervous because once you play D&D for really any significant amount of time you realize that guards get outclassed by adventurers real fast so uh, having there be an adventurers guild in a city is of you know, debatable. Yeah. So by having an adventurer's guild in the middle of nowhere, let's say you do have, you know, a bigger guild. So 50 adventurers of various levels that just work together to build this kind of place for themselves, then that is so much skill and knowledge and power accumulated in this place. So Adventurers also can skew, you know, the action economy numbers because they do get, you know, multi-attack and area of effect spells over time. So if you have an adventurer's guild and then you have that same 50 ban- or sorry, 100 bandit scenario, 50 adventurers will mop the fucking floor with 100 bandits because if you just have five guys who can cast fireball, the bandits are pretty much fucked. So thinking about the balance of power is honestly part of the fun of a stronghold because there is the defense side of things and the offensive side. And that is really, really flexible because there are so many things that you could do with that. So 
you can have all the canonical magic that exists to build and defend all of these kind of places. You can have adventurers that try to attack a stronghold. And this is another thing that I actually see much less often than I would expect to, because there are quite a number of times in a D&D game where you'll have like the massive kingdom level armies that are all going to fight each other. And like that is a really hard, complicated thing to do. However, one thing that isn't talked about is the lead up to that kind of thing. So there should be like keeps on like the edges of territory that are the ones who are supposed to send word home, like we actually did talk about earlier today, uh, when there is some attacking force. So using adventurers as a strike team against a weaker kind of stronghold, well, I mean, depending on the level of adventurers, of course, and the stronghold itself. So having adventurers attacking a stronghold can absolutely be the explanation in game of what the adventurers are doing when the massive battle is happening. Because, as we so often say, the action economy in a war scenario means that the players should fucking die. Because if you have, you know, your guys versus an army of thousands, some of those arrows are gonna hit you. Like, that's just how that would work out most of the time. So by having strongholds be an established part of the goal and part of the world, that gives you yet another thing for the adventurers to be doing to be valuable in that situation. So their job is to just go to the strongholds to prevent the messengers, to allow your forces the advantage in the large battle. And that just gives your players something to do to be helpful, which, great. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. In summary, strongholds at the most basic level can just be a small place with pointy wood sticks around it, all the way up to an entire city that can grow around a central keep, protected by magic, protected by guards, protected by magic items that may exist. Whether you do just use rules as written, whether you do just use... Uh, rules with a bit of homebrew added on, or whether you do go back to using some of the older materials to supplement your game, Stronghold can be a very valuable and fun addition to your D&D world, and I highly encourage you to use them and put more thought into how such things can work for your worlds. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rifts and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tier stars lose a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supports get benefits such as behind the scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, we will shout the cast, and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Podcast, and you can send us an email, riftsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs and rules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.